Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. All right, let's get started then. I will talk for about 45, 50 minutes. And during the talk, I will give you an overview of the new book, Imperialism and the Developing World. The book is a study of both causes and consequences of modern imperialism. And the focus is on British imperialism in the 19th century and on the American imperialism in the 20th century. And I analyze both formal and informal empire that is colonialism, but also significant influence without territorial control. So it's a long book, about 540 pages of just text, and then, then some for additional things. Took a long time to write, about 10 years. As the table of contents suggests, it begins with the East India Company and ends with the most recent US war and intervention in Iraq. So it tries to make a sweeping uh, sort of analysis of motives and impact behind great power politics and imperial interventions. So first half of the book is on British empire. You can see the cases that are analyzed very quickly there in the table of contents. And the second half of the book is on on American interventions. And again, very quickly, you can notice the cases that I have covered. Now to give you a flavor of this book, I debated how to do so. And the decision I made was I'm going to do three things. First, I'm going to summarize the overall argument in about 10 minutes. And then I will give you two empirical snippets from the book. And I chose one from 19th century, British Empire, especially East India Company's role in India with a nod to China. And then for the 20th century, I will talk about US role in Latin America, especially in imposing Washington consensus on Latin American political economies late in the 20th century. So it, basically you will get a sense of the beginning and the end part of the book. Of course, I'm going to ignore much else that is in their book. My hope is that it will whet your appetite enough to go read the book. And Oxford University Press will even give you a 30% discount if you send me or Emma an email and there is a voucher, uh, a discount. And the cover is great, right? And contrary to popular perceptions, you should judge a book by its cover. And I have a great cover, so I can't promise the content that you have to judge, but the cover is uh, a Diego Rivera mural on top of the book. All right. Let me summarize the, thank you, Pritish. Yes, thank you for showing the cover. Uh, let me summarize the argument relatively quickly. So as I said, the book, traces both the causes of imperialism and consequences of imperialism. Now focus on that fact for a minute 
causes of imperialism is generally a subject matter that is addressed either by diplomatic historians or scholars of international relations. Consequences of imperialism is a subject that is either sort of analyzed by scholars of development, economic historians, dependency scholars, or trade historian, trade, uh, uh, excuse me, development trade-oriented scholars with interest in historical developments. So I've tried to bring these two strands of scholarship together from diplomatic international history and study of political economy of development in this book. So causes of imperialism, those of you who study these things will know that the debates are a legion. Realists, Marxists, liberals all have their own views on why imperialists imperialize. I argue in this book that the taproot of imperialism is the desire of hegemonic powers to enhance their national economic prosperity. And I suggest that they do so by undermining sovereignty in peripheral countries and establishing open economic access. So the key intuition that runs through the book, the key, theor the key theoretical intuition is that national economic prosperity for metropolitan powers is both an end in itself, but it is also a means to power. And so the effort to separate wealth and power by liberals, Marxists, and realists, I think in the end is foolhardy. I think the two are so deeply linked. And as a result, the drive for imperialism has to be understood as, as both economic and political. This argument, as you can imagine, is in dialogue with both realist and Marxist standpoints on imperialism, but I hope to transcend that debate and be happy to answer questions at the end if you have some. So that's one thread that runs throughout the book. The second thread that runs throughout the book through case studies and through variety of other uh, methods of research is what was the impact of imperialism? Of course, once again, the subject is hardly new. Enormous amounts has been written, just as it, just as it has been on causes. So it has been on uh, uh, on impact. In recent years, there has been a tendency to lionize the empire again. Folks like Neil Ferguson and others have tried to recover some sense that imperialism might have had some positive sides to it. I demur from that side or go, I go back to older arguments, but with newer evidence and in the end argue that impact on the countries of the periphery was negative, even sharply negative. So the central argument of the, of the book as far as impact is concerned is, or the central conclusion that emerges from the analysis of impact is that national sovereignty is an economic asset. And since imperialism seeks to limit the sovereign power of subject people, I suggest that there is an inverse relationship between the degree of political control external powers have over a country and its development and its development prospects. So, so put as a hypothesis, the less control a state has over its own affairs, the less likely it is that the people of that state will experience inclusive economic progress. I think I'm able to demonstrate in the book 
that impact varies with degree of political control. And so formal control or colonialism leads to worst economic outcomes. Informal empire is somewhere in between, but sovereign and effective states are needed for uh, self-sustaining inclusive uh, development. And this argument, as you might imagine, is in dialogue with both dependency and pro-globalization standpoints. So against old dependency arguments such as Wallerstein, I, I'm emphasizing a lot more the role of states and against pro-globalization standpoint, I'm suggesting that national sovereignty is an economic asset rather than openness. So those are the two key themes that run throughout the book about causes and consequences. But then there are numerous sub-themes that emerge by juxtaposing types of imperialism, types of centuries across which imperialism varies, US versus Britain, all of that, if you want to get a better sense of, you will of course need to read the book. But I put, picked out three sort of insights which I've predicted I find particularly interesting to give you a flavor that the book is not only about generalizing causes and consequences, but it is also about contrasting and finding patterns that differ and trying to find explanations for them. So let me just pick on three of them as an example. First, British and American imperialism differ in a very important way. I argue that Britain needed an empire, whereas the United States merely wants one. And this distinction lies in the fact that American economy was a giant economy to begin with. It was a continental sized economy. And the type of need that Britain had to sustain its industrialization in 19th century and needed colonies as a, as a place to uh, to export its manufactured products, the United States never really had that need as intense. And as a result, the United States sort of has, you know, sort of, I argue for a variety of reasons, decided it wanted an empire. And this distinction leads to some important, to my mind, insights. So for example, you might notice that if you read the book or if you just are familiar with the subject, that there, is, there was a lot more consensus in Britain in the 19th century about the need and desire for empire. Americans, by contrast, always disagree. This was as true for their early intervention in 20th century in Philippines, as it was during Vietnam War, as it was during recent Iraq interventions. So there is a lot more dissensus, and I trace that back to the degree of need which I think was a lot more intense for Britain than it is for America. So that's one type of comparative insight that emerges. Another type of question that I struggled with throughout the book was what were the circumstances under which metropolitan powers chose to colonize some parts of the world and establish informal empire in other places? a question especially relevant for Britain in the 19th century. Why in the middle of 19th century, India, Britain decides to impose formal control over India, but chooses mainly 
to strike China with opium wars, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the types of questions I struggled with. And my argument in the end is different from the type of question, type of argument the well-known historians Gallagher and Robinson have offered, which was that Britain in the 19th century preferred an informal empire. Against that, I argue that the evidence supports both the United States and Britain prefer more political control over the periphery, but settle for less when they face opposition, either from indigenous elite or from competing global powers. But whether you buy that argument or not, the point I want you to keep in mind is the main mechanism for establishing informal empire by both Britain and United States over the two centuries has been an effort to establish what I call stable subservience. So informal is empire works best when governments on the periphery offer stability, but not so much stability that they are powerful enough to char chart their own path. So it's they want subservience at the own at the same time. And this effort to create stable but subservient governments on the periphery is both the challenge of informal empire and more often than not, it has remained a work in progress, uh, sort of exemplified dramatically by, by the role of major imperial power, say in China, trying to prop up the Qing uh, emperor late in the 19th century. So that's a second type of theme that runs throughout the book. And finally, of course, this is a little more obvious, but it's good to keep in mind that the nature of imperialism in 19th and 20th century has changed dramatically. It has changed for lots and lots of reasons, but one of the main ones which gets underemphasized, especially Americans don't think about this often enough, uh, is that the nature of authority structures in the global periphery have changed dramatically. So the gone, you know, gone are the Maharajas, the Pashas, you know, the Kodios and various sultans with which you could strike a bargain in the 19th century where you sort of allowed them to rule and they collected taxes or, or provided armed forces. So that social structure on which informal empire as well as types of indirect rule within colonialism rested, those social structures have vanished. And as a result, you get emergence of plebiscitarian mass politics in the in 20th century, which makes the life of Americans much more difficult than it did of the British in the 19th century. You don't have pashas out there anymore to control. So Americans are constantly looking for the middle class to support them in a project of establishing stable subservience. But that middle class slips out of their fingers because more often than not, they're pretty politically fickle and as, <clears throat> as amenable to nationalist appeals as, they, uh, as to any other vested interest. So in other words, I make the case that creation of informal empire has become very difficult late in the 20th, early in the 21st century, and is likely to lead to more and more imperial failures in the future when uh, American attempts more Iraqs in the new millennium. 
So that's the type of book this is. I have given you a flavor of the overall argument. And even if I didn't spend any more time, you now have a sense of what the book is about. I've given you, so it focuses on causes, consequences, and variety of sub-themes that I compare. Now I'm going to walk you through some empirical snippets throughout the book. And they will just add to what I have already said, give you a texture of how I <clears throat> develop the argument uh, in the book. I was going to spend some time on how I conceptualize and define informal empire, but time is short and I'm going to skip this slide. The only thing I will say is that I emphasize the role of coercion in what constitutes an informal empire. And if anybody wants to ask questions, of course, please do so, or take a look at the book chapter itself, because very often people want to know what on earth is an informal empire. Everybody recognizes a colony, but informal empire is more, little more analytically fuzzy. And so I emphasize the role of coercion. All right, now to the two snippets. I'm just going to check time I have taken. All right. <clears throat> So I'm going to talk a little bit about Britain and India first, and then about United States and Latin America second. The British role in India in the 19th century, the main storyline to this audience is definitely well known if you're associated with something called Global Development Institute, the main storyline, I'm going to presume you folks uh, have a good sense of. I argue, you know, this part is not that controversial, that East India Company's role in India began at the behest of private interest, but over time, the British state and the EIC became close partners in India. That part is not controversial. Uh, I found the evidence pretty persuasive that imperial motives were deeply economic, but what exactly that means need, needed to be spelled out. Economic motives included both narrow profits, first off the East India Company itself, which meant variety of investors, mainly in London, that had invested in EIC. But if it was just that, then the argument would be much more amenable to a Marxist type of analysis. Over and over again, what I also noticed was the benefits that British state was, was acquiring either by taxing EIC or through a variety of other methods, which I'm going to give you some sense of in the slides that emerge. So the central theme that runs on the question of motives behind expansion into India in 19th century is that they were driven both by narrow economic interests of the economic elite, but also broader economic interests as defined by British rulers during that century. And the impact on India was profoundly negative. There I share the view with Indian nationalists, an earlier argument, but I'm able to assign numbers to it in a way that some earlier scholarships was not able to. And now with good work with economic historians and some of my own research, the slides I will show you will give you a sense 
both of the mechanisms through which some of this exploitation was uh, uh, was implemented, as well as the scale of it, because uh, some of the numbers are now more readily available than they were uh, earlier. So in terms of those of you who study nationalist Indian history or British economic history of the 19th century, a standard question was, what was the main mechanisms of exploitation? In Marxist accounts, in, in, in dependency accounts, it was mainly the third of the three mechanisms I list here, that it's a, it's a story of forced economic opening. I emphasize the first part as well, a fiscal story, how extracted resources by the company and then by former British rule were extracted and how they were used. And I think that is really central for understanding how Britain shaped India. And I call it, it was a pattern of squeeze and neglect. So what's really going on is Britain is squeezing resources out of India and it is using them for uses other than what might have benefited Indians. I don't emphasize the plunder story as much in Indian nationalist accounts, the drain hypothesis and all of those, if you're a specialist on this, uh, you know, sort of going as far back as R.C. Dutt, some of those arguments were emphasized. I move away from them. I focus on the first and the third mechanism that it, the mechanisms of exploitation are part fiscal and part forced opening of the economy, which is of course a pretty standard left argument but I'll show you numbers which are a little different. So on the fiscal story, what we can now tell, which we were not able to tell before because data was incomplete, was the scale of revenues that East India Company and then British rulers extracted from India in the 19th century. The reason it, it was difficult to do so for a variety of reasons, but absolutely heroic research by the British economic historian Stephen Broadbury at LSE and their colleagues, as well as by the American economic historian John Richards. Now we can put together the scale of revenue extraction from India. And I want you to notice that last column in this table, which is revenue as a percentage of the controlled territory, right? The territory is changing how much territory East India Company controls is very different in the early part of the century than it's later in the century. So to get at good figures, you have to have figures of how much territory they control and how much were they extracting. And now we're able to put those together. And so what emerges is that for much of the 19th century, nearly 19% of Indian GDP is being extracted as the total revenues. So first EIC and then the, the British crown. Now this compares, if you think of what Indian government today collects in terms of taxation, that's about 16%. So in 19th century, the British in India are collecting about 19% of Indian GDP per year, per decade for a whole century. 
and ask yourself what was done with these resources. This table gives you a sense of where these resources were coming from and how were they spent mainly. So look at the second column. And what you will notice is more than 60% or about 60% of these total revenues I just mentioned are simply derived as land revenues. And then nearly 50% of these are used mainly to run the British Indian Army. So what, what is going on here is essentially poor Indian peasants are paying for a British Indian Army that the British are using in part to further expand their role over India. And then once that project is over, they use the same armed force to, to badger China through opium wars, right? It's the Sikh soldiers on East India ships that badger sort of open up East, the, you know, open up China for trade, as well as all around the African Cape, et cetera. It's this army that helps expand uh, the imperial role. And at the same time, if you, I don't have a table for this, if you look at what the expenditure on health and education is for at, at this time, it's under 2%. So for a whole century, 19% of Indian GDP is being extracted and very little of it is being invested, say in irrigation. Had there been some significant investment in irrigation for a whole century, in, rest of India might look like Punjab, where there was enormous amount of investment in irrigation to keep retired Sikh soldiers from rebelling. So that's the fiscal, a quick overview of the fiscal side of the story. This is a more conventional account of forced opening of Indian economy and what its impact was. For, time, for the sake of time, I just want to make a few points. Notice the first three columns on the left. Each of those demonstrate that throughout the century, India's manufactured exports declined, right? That's the classic deindustrialization story. I'm going to come back and show you more persuasive data than the trade data. Trade data has never been totally convincing on that. But nevertheless, do notice the trade data that manufactured goods exports declined throughout the century. But what I really want you to notice, which I'm surprised why more scholars of Indian colonialism don't talk about, is what's happening to opium exports. That's the fifth column. So the largest export out of India over the century becomes opium. So what is amazing, not amazing, what is interesting is that Britain is not directly taking enormous amount of Indian exports. And Britain has a constant problem on how to balance the trade. And that trade gets balanced by selling this growing amount of exports, of course, not to Britain, but to China. So the classic triangular trade that gets established is Britain sells manufacturing goods to India, India sells opium to China, and China sells tea 
back to England, which East India Company sells and makes enormous amounts of profit. So in terms of the forced economic opening story as a mechanism of exploitation, this suggests that India did undergo a transformation from being a producer of manufactured goods to a exporter of commodities, especially opium under East India rule and then continued through the British crown rule. This is much more convincing data. And this is thanks to Stephen Bradbury who helped me uh, do some of these calculations. And this demonstrates the deindustrialization hypothesis much more convincingly because he and his co-authors have recreated the national accounts of India's 19th century accounts. And here in column two, for example, you see dramatically the decline in export industries. So the older debate on deindustrialization, which rested on trade data, which rested on labor wage data, may not was not always convincing. If you're an economic historian, you will remember Morris Morris arguing with uh, with Indian nationalists, ah, oh, you get it wrong, wrong. I think this is the last nail in that coffin that deindustrialization was dramatic and was real. And this new data, I think settles that, I hope once for all. It's not my data, but I have used it to make the case. Here, I want to go back to making the point about opium trade. And this and the next slide will conclude the discussion on 19th century. And this is China, sort of this is China and India trade data. And the main thing I want you to notice, aside from the fact that from 1840s onward, opium, opium export into China in, from India increases sharply thanks to the opium wars, but that is not part of this, my current talk. That's another chapter in the book about which I'm not talking. The significance of this slide for the current talk is notice how tea exports and opium imports balanced each other. That is to say the tea that Britain is buying from China to sell back in Britain as well as selling, sending it to the United States and selling it to other parts of European countries would not have been possible without the opium. And what's the significance of that? This is the last slide on India and this will underline the significance of that, that if you buy the argument that the heart of British export-oriented growth in 19th century was, were textiles, especially in great, up to 1860s and 70s. Then notice in this slide that by the end of the century, India is taking 40% of British textile exports. It's the only real captured markets. The rest are either informal empire and Europe and USA 
have by now slapped tariffs and are doing their own industrialization. So Britain cannot sell its textiles to those parts of the world. It is able to sustain its textile industry, mainly because of captive colonies such as India. And that trade is possible only because Indian opium can be sold in China. And in return, Chinese tea has great market in Britain as well as the United States. That was the point of showing the last slide on China to sustain the suggestion that Britain is benefiting handsomely by its formal and informal empire in Asia and by linking India and China in a triangular trade that then enables it to sustain its key industry while at the same time hurting India adversely and of course China, right? 10 to 15% of Chinese became opium addicts after the opium war. And John Fairbanks calls it the greatest human rights crime of modern times. And so in that sense, it is notable the issue of costs and benefits of 19th century empire. Now let's shift focus to a much more recent case of informal imperialism. How am I doing on time, Pratish? We've got about 10 minutes. Okay, thank you. So I'll go through relatively quickly. I will assume much of most of this audience knows the main storyline. So this is a case of United States imposing structural policies, structural adjustment policies in Latin America in order to ensure that its debt was paid back in the 1980s and 1990s. I, I will not spend time on the broader context. Most of you know of, about globalization of finance in the post-OPEC period. What I wanna spend some time, uh, the 10 minutes I have left is to show you how concentrated the debt was. About four Latin American countries borrowed sort of more than half the debt from about 65% of the debt from 10 American banks, I will show you. And the effort I argue to ensure that these debts are paid back was at the heart of imposing Washington consensus. And in the process, the banks did very well and poor Latin America did not do very well. And so that's the story I'm going to tell you in the next seven, eight minutes, just to tweak your curiosity enough to read about it with the slides that I'm going to show. These are the 10 banks that, that uh, lent about 65% of loans to four, four or five major Latin American countries that eventually came to be called the debt crisis of 1980s. What I want you to notice is these are the incomes of those banks in the heyday of when debt crisis hit. For those of you who don't know that economic history, in 1982, the debt crisis was precipitated after Mexico could not pay its loan back. But notice what happens to bank profits in the post 82 period. You would have thought that banks would have been hit hard 
But the fact is bank profits from 82 to 86 rose. And I argue this was deliberately orchestrated by the International Monetary Fund under US direction to, uh, to modify the nature of economic arrangements in Latin America, which would enable uh, this type of debt payoff. So not only was debt, debt payments insured by US policies of you know, economic opening in Latin America, but other advantages included rising exports of manufactured goods, which is not shown here, but rising exports here is quite evident. This is the time period when Western Europe is beginning to buy less from the United States. American economy is feeling more and more pressure that they are becoming non-competitive. Japan and Germany have emerged, have recovered from war years, and US economy is beginning to tilt towards finance. So where will American manufactured goods go? And Latin America becomes one important part where nearly forced opening of their economies and deregulation and getting all the tariffs down enables US exports of manufactured goods to increase. Direct foreign investment did not alter in any dramatic fashion. And that's because US interest was mainly in finance and as in sort of more liquid capital. And so I just included that. So you have a sense that foreign investment was not one area. The area which was very significant for United States was what happens to portfolio investment. This is much more liquid money. I'm happy to answer questions about it, but it was after the debt crisis recedes, there is dramatic increase in US portfolio investment moving into Latin America, looking for high rates of return. That it, that it did not stay at very high levels. Well, that's just bad luck that had to do with Asian financial crisis in 1997 and other things went awry. But the fact is, that this was an important aim. So among US aims and benefits as they imposed Washington consensus on Latin America was to ensure that debt was paid back to major banks, that exports increased and portfolio investors were, had access to, American, to Latin American economies. And I argue this was the real purpose behind imposing structural adjustment programs. And just to round out that picture, I'm going to show you a few slides that the impact on Latin America was pretty negative, and the key variable was sovereignty, loss of sovereignty, which ties back to the original main theme of the book, that sovereignty is an economic asset. So very quickly, these last three slides, this shows you roughly relationship between foreign debt and GDP growth. I'm comparing Latin America for, to Asia here for heuristic purposes. And what comes across very strikingly is that if you had, uh, if you had sort of, if your debt service was not enormous in the 1980s, you did relatively well on the growth front in the, over the next 25 years. So Latin America had much higher debt which is on the x-axis and its growth rates were lower. What's the point I'm trying to convey? 
it's not a strong causal point. I didn't control for all kinds of variables. It's a much simpler associational type of relationship, which I want you to think about. What's happening here is that with higher debt, Latin American states have less sovereignty to control their national economic policies. They're much more vulnerable to external pressure. So therefore they end up embracing structural adjustment programs. Most Asian countries don't have that level of debt and therefore they are able to sort of ignore, you know, especially look at China all the way up there, but China is an outlier. Look at all, even Pakistan is in that left circle where they were, these were not highly indebted countries and had a degree of economic freedom and the growth rate shows that. A similar thing is evident here. If you have higher savings rates domestically, you are less, you are less exposed to external pressures when it comes to need for foreign investment. And therefore you need less a certification from an organization like IMF that your house is in order and foreign investors can come in. So Asian countries generally throughout this period I'm talking about had much higher savings rates. As a result, they were less dependent on foreign capital. And therefore during this de high debt years, Latin American countries with lower domestic savings rates needed organizations like IMF to sign off so that more foreign investments will continue flowing into them. And that created further sort of constraints on their sovereignty, economic sovereignty, if you like. So both of those slides are meant to demonstrate if you had less economic sovereignty in late 80s into the next millennium, you grew, you grew less well and the underlying variable may well have been lack of economic sovereignty. That's the last slide just to very quickly show manufactured exports in Asia did much better, which itself is a sign of sort of economic nationalism that you can sell manufactured goods to it to the world market and Latin America remained commodity dependent well into the new millennium, underlining more or less a neo-colonial pattern of uh, importing manufactured goods and continue to depend on commodity exports. I'm going to conclude now. Um, so the book I'm telling you about, I gave you a couple of brief empirical snippets. There's a lot more material in there. It's mainly an empirical book. Uh, it's hard to summarize in a 45, 50 minute talk. And I don't claim enormous originality in this book because you know, at different stages of your career, you write different books. When you're young, you have to be original. I just wanted to get it right. So at this stage, my effort was mainly to get it right, but that doesn't mean I've just rehashed what is out there because you know, people think differently. And in that sense to just repeat key issues of what might be somewhat new here in terms of causes, I have tried to combine a focus on nation with economic interests. So I'm, I talk about national economic interest, which is different than talking about economic interest of capitalists, which is also different than talking about national security as the motivating force. So in that sense, it tries to combine and move beyond realist and Marxist debates on why imperialists imperialize. And on impact, I think I'm able to demonstrate that the, that the, the 
that that it is the less sovereignty you have, the more adversely you're likely to be impacted by external forces, especially uh, dominant uh, dominant metropolitan uh, policy machinations. That economic that sovereignty remains an economic asset if you want to move into sort of inclusive development into the 21st century. It may not be enough. You still need effective states, but sovereignty is a prior condition even for the emergence of uh, effective states. So sovereign and effective states remain the prerequisite for inclusive development in the 21st century. Thank you.